You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. That's actually written in the chapter after what we'll be going through today as they're looking for a king, and Jesse brings out his sons, and they're like, here's my son. And, you know, Samuel's like, is there anyone else? Is there anyone else? It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. He's like, well, I got this little peon over here, like shepherding people. You think that might be him? And God's like, that's the one. And so it comes as we're realizing that the Lord has a completely different way that he is looking at um, us and what's going on because humans are always looking at what is visible. But in order to understand 1 Samuel 16, uh, 7 better, I thought, let's go to the chapter before it, which in the book of 1 Samuel is going to be maybe 15, 16 are kind of your crucial chapters in understanding 1 Samuel. 15 and 16, because something's happening in these two things, and it all starts with, it starts with an idea. Uh, Some of you probably have uh, good ideas from time to time. You're thinking about stuff, and you go, this would be a good idea. And one of the things I love about just you folks at Genesis, people that I run into, is you're always thinking about how to make things better right? You're always like, well, what if we did like this? Or what if we did like that? Or what if we did this, right? Even the Easter egg hunt was like, let's try this. Let's do it like this and set this up and have people over here and have people there. Like always thinking, always planning, always trying out new ideas. It's awesome. However, there's a caveat because we recognize that we're pretty fallen people, right? That we need the work of Jesus because even on our best days, we don't generally think about things right. Is that our best ideas still aren't that good, And very often, because we're fickle, right, our hearts are kind of wandering in different directions, very often we don't even know what's best. We don't know really, we might might know what we think is best, we might think we have a good idea, we might think we have a good plan, but really it's only based on our experience. So we very often have a distorted view of what's best. What is the best thing for us? What's the best thing for our church? What is the best thing? Sometimes uh, you get nervous when somebody comes and goes, hey, you know, Hans, I have an idea. I'm like, okay, bring it on. That's great. I have, I have ideas too. Is this, are we sharing them or are you just giving them to me? But we have a distorted view of what's best, and this is why I love one of those statements that we'll say about who we are at Genesis is we want to conform to Scripture. Because what we will believe And what anybody who follows Jesus should believe is that we recognize that what we think is best may not be best. But we also know that the Lord has revealed to us through his scriptures what actually is best. Both the way of thinking, a way of conforming, a way of behaving, a way of believing that he's actually said this is best. Which is great for us because really what do we do as cultures is we just kind of move along with what's popular with the time. And it's anchored in what the collection might think is best. But really that's not going to be best. It might feel best for a decade or for two or for 50 years or for a century, but it actually isn't best. And so God, who is timeless, has revealed himself in time and is showing us through his scriptures what actually is best. Now, ultimately, that's going to be Jesus. But even as we follow after Jesus, how then do we become more like Jesus? By reading, praying over, understanding, discussing, and applying what we see in his word. So this morning, 1 Samuel 15 If you're reading along in our reading plan with us, you'll have recognized that uh, earlier in Samuel, the people, the nation, want a king. They have decided it's time for a king. Now, I have to say this, because you might might miss it. Um, God had always intended for there to be a king. 
In fact, he actually had spoken about this through Moses. Hey, when there is a king, the king does not need to take horses for himself and do this. And when you have a king, the king needs to write down uh, this law. Like, so there was an understanding that there would be a rule. There would be a king. And it's reflective of what God is going to be revealing in uh, the person and work of Jesus. But there's an understanding there was going to be a king. But what happened is Israel wanted to jump the gun. They were getting a little tired of the way that things were. Samuel had some sons he set up as judges, and they didn't like those judges because they weren't following after God. And so some people, right, with an idea, they show up, they call a meeting with, this, with Samuel. Hey, you know, can we meet this week? And, you know, Samuel's like, oh, gosh, I don't want to do that, but okay, I put it in the phone. He kind of schedules the meeting. And they say, your sons are crazy. They're just crazy, and we're not going to follow them. So how about this? Let's just have a king and there's this scary phrase they use. You know the phrase? Like the other nations. Let's have a king, and let's have a king who's like the other nations, like the people around us. We want to look like them. Well, all of these other nations had rulers. And aren't you, I mean, think about it, aren't you as a people often somehow identified with the person who might be leading you? Right? When you think of your own, even in our society, when you think of your own folks and your own uh, politicians or leaders in the government, like there is some way that they are reflecting you. You may or may not like it. Sometimes you're like, I know, I know, I know. You might think Americans think X, but really, no, it's over here. But we are a reflection of leadership. And so they're like, we need kings, we need rulers, we need power, we need might. And so they, they have an idea that was actually in the mind of God already, which was a king. But they jumped the gun because they want to look like the nations around them. So they go through this process, and Samuel selects Saul. And Saul could have been a king today. Tall, good-looking guy, right? And especially because now TV is where you see everybody, like, you know, a face for TV, not a, not a face for radio, right? He had a face for TV. And so Saul was this guy who everyone was following after, and they, go, they set him up. Well, we learned from the jump, really, that Saul is a bit of a loser. Like, like God sets him up as king, but essentially what he says to the people is, I'll give you a king, but it's not what you should ask for. It's not what you should want. And so there are multiple times, even in the story leading up to chapter 15, where you get to see pretty quickly, though there are some victories, Saul does some things that feel like kings should do, there are also times where you, you realize very quickly that Saul is not the one they should have asked for. Chapter 15, that all comes to a head. And in fact, the kingdom will be taken away from Saul. Now, I was sharing with some guys this week that the, the, scary, the scary part about that is that the people wanted a king, and they shouldn't have in this way. That shouldn't have been their desire, but God gave it to them. Not only did he give it to them, but they actually had to endure the whole ruler kingdom of Saul, even though it wasn't what they should have asked for. So decades go by where they have to actually experience their lack of desire for the Lord and their desire to look for the people around them. You think about that, right? Like so often we want like this quick healing to a bad decision, and sometimes we have to actually live with the consequences of those decisions for the bulk of, if not, our whole life. And so God's like, I'll give you a king. You can have Saul. So we're going to be through 1 Samuel 15. It has maybe the most memorable passage in 1 Samuel right here embedded in the middle. 
But we'll just start off. Chapter 15, verse one. Samuel said to Saul, the judge Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek or Malak did to Israel in opposing them on, on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Don't spare them. Kill both man, women, child, and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, I'll go ahead and stop there because there's a lot that can freak us out in that passage itself. There's a good article by, I believe, Derek Kidner, but it's called Old Testament Perspectives of War. And it's this idea of like, okay, what's going on in the first three chapters? Like, is that, do I conform to scripture and look at those first three verses? And he essentially says there's this idea that exists where Israel is an instrument in the world of the judgment of God, okay? And remember, remember what God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Like, we have to always go back to Genesis 12 because that's an important part of everything else that we read. And he says, I'll bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. Right? So, so we're gonna, you can bring blessing into this world, but also if, those are, if there are those who are going to oppose you, I oppose them because really they're opposing me. So there's an idea that Israel would at times, not always, at times be agents or essentially deliverers of God's judgment to the surrounding nations. Now go back to Exodus chapter 17, you'll have to go there, it'll be on the screen, and there's just a few verses there, verses 14 through 16, where you see what's going on. The Lord said to Moses, because they're defeating um, Amalek, Amalek, Amalekites are easier to say, The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, called uh, called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So there was this time where they opposed and God said, write it down, they're gonna be done for. They're gonna be done for. And actually, God in his grace, they stay for some time. Then Samuel goes to Saul and says, it's time to pay up on that thing I said. Essentially, it's time, it's time to bring that about. And so go and destroy the nation that has opposed you. You might go, well, do we do that now? My answer would be no. No, we're not a, in this sense a theocracy. Right, like we are, the spirit resides in all believers all over the world. We do not approach this in the same way at all. Uh, but there was this, these moments at times and not always where God would say, it's time. And it was never because somebody was righteous, it was always because of the wickedness um, and aggression of a surrounding nation. And in fact, we're gonna see, even as we get into this, a, an amount of grace given to a group of folks who are among the Amalekites, right? So, so first three verses, he says, go. That's the mission that Samuel gives to Saul to fulfill what was spoken in Exodus chapter 17 sometime before. So Saul summoned the people. He numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So pause there, just note if you need need it. Moses had a father-in-law named Jethro, okay? Jethro was a father-in-law. Jethro was a Kenite, okay? 
So Jethro was a Kenite. Jethro comes to Moses and says, hey, you can't lead these people the right way like this. And so he's in Exodus chapter 18, he's like, divide it up. Like, set up different kind of judges among yourself so that you don't have to lead every aspect and every dispute for yourself. And so you see through Jethro the kindness of the Kenites given to Moses, good, you know, counsel and advice that then helped for Moses to lead. And so going even back to that, they go, you have shown kindness to us. So you even see then, Genesis 12 being fulfilled, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. And so goes and goes, get the Kenites out of there. Because if you're sitting around and we're here, we're not responsible for you going with the Amalekites. So the Kenites departed. Verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And then he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, and the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So now we have a problem. Because verses one through three, he was told to do one thing. In verses four through nine, now he does a different thing. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and he came and told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal, which was a military staging city. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I did it, I did it. Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, oh, they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction, which sounds like good intentions. Right? Sounds like a good idea. No, we decided to take some because they're really nice and sacrifices are a good thing. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Samuel replied, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission said, go, devote the destruction to the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which he sent to me. I have brought Agag, the king of of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, ox, and the best of the things to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And Gilgal says, Samuel, your God, we're gonna do this for you, it's gonna be awesome. Here's the line that becomes well known in the book of Samuel. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, and everything that Samuel was doing was presuming upon what was best. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. These people you gave to me, they caused me to sin. Now, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said, I won't return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, awesome word picture, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie uh, or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Saying God's fine with his decision. Then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people, because they're looking, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, Saul bowed before the Lord. So they had this little moment, like, hey, let me, let me at least save a little face and do this, this, this thing here. Okay. But listen, Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So Samuel's like trying to finish out what God had said. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Like, we're good now. He's calmed down. Samuel, not Saul anymore, said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces in the sight of the Lord. Just pause there. I had a Greek teacher who told us that if we translated words wrong, he would hack us to pieces in the sight of the Lord. It's always what he said. He's like, if you do this, I'm going to hack you to pieces in the sight of the Lord. So every time I read that verse, I think about messing up in Dr. J. Smith's class. Uh, so like, don't do that, hack it to pieces. But Samuel then, Samuel had to finish what Saul wouldn't. That's what he did. Samuel had to finish what Saul wouldn't. So Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went to his house in Gibeah. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Okay. Three characters in this story, really, that get some play that we'll talk about. Three characters, one idea. That's what we're going to do. The first two, Saul and Samuel, we'll look at based upon kind of a phrase. I just assigned a quote to them. I don't assign quotes to God because he's given us his word, right? So assign an idea. So, so Samuel and Saul are going to get a quote. This is Saul. We'll start with him. Saul essentially says this. I know what is better for God than God does. I know what's better. Let me do what I think is best here. Now remember the story, right? Okay, we already have. Samuel goes to Saul and says, it's time. The Amalekites need to be gone. Saul goes, well, we'll do most of that, but let's go ahead and keep some of the animals so that we can sacrifice. Because God said sacrifices are good. It's a good thing to sacrifice, right? I mean, we have already read parts of um, Leviticus, and so we know like, there's a system that exists where God is giving his people ways to worship him through sacrifice. So you can see the blending of a good thought with a bad idea and how it turned into what Saul did. We do that all the time. So he's like, I know, this is good. Even when confronted on it, 
Samuel, or Saul says to Samuel, listen, this is okay. I have obeyed the voice of God. I've done what you've asked. Now we're gonna have a sacrifice. So even him, he does not see what is going on in the moment. He rather views himself as in the right. Every time, until he gets confronted a couple of times. And then he's like, you're right, I sinned. I was afraid of the people. It was the people who freaked me out. I'm like, ah, you're the leader. That's what Saul says. The Lord set you up as a leader over this place. You can't view yourself as small. You're, you're in charge here. And then this is the way that you represent God. That phrase, I know what is better for God than God does, is one that so often comes into our minds, doesn't it? Even just a little bit. Hey, what if we did it like this instead? We do this with the scriptures all the time because what did Satan say in the beginning? Did God really say this? All right, did God really say this? There's always kind of these ways that we relive that statement and how we operate. Well, I know that God said this, but I really just, I can't, I can't believe that God said that. So, and, and notice what Saul does. He takes something else God said and set that up as why he didn't do it. Right? I said these up to sacrifice. Then we're gonna sacrifice, and God wants us to sacrifice, doesn't he? There's all these kinds of ways that we can take something that God has commanded and then go, yeah, but. Because what is Saul doing? Saul is trying to add to what the Lord had commanded. Now, when we do the same thing so often with uh, the gospel message, we don't try to, but we end up doing it. We add Jesus and or Jesus plus to how we want to operate. Well, yeah, I know you have faith in Jesus, but you also probably need to whatever. And we take something that might be good, right? You also probably need to be more responsible. It's a good thing to be responsible. It is a good thing to be like to manage your household well, right? But then we take the gospel truth, the thing that God has commanded, the thing in which we should believe, and then elevate something else to be on par with it so that the one who hears it thinks that they're the same thing. That's exactly what Saul is doing. God said this very clearly, but I'm gonna go ahead and twist how God said that. I'm gonna add something to it, and somehow it's gonna come out better. Listen, friends, it never comes out better, ever. We can never take what God has said and somehow make it better. We'll learn that uh, more here shortly. So Saul has his idea on why things will be better, and where does it result? You don't get the kingdom anymore. You don't get it anymore. Samuel has an interesting role. Samuel has essentially this, this idea, I'll obey even if it grieves me. So Samuel goes to Saul, and he says, this is what God wants you to do. And when Saul doesn't do it, Samuel, or he goes back to Saul, and he says this, hey, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And you know what he's doing with that. He's like, I shouldn't be hearing any animals. They should all be gone. Should have destroyed them. So, so why do I hear them? Help me out here. What's going on? It's almost like when God says uh, to Adam and Eve, like, where are you? Right? Where are you? Like he doesn't know, right? Like he's unaware but just drawing out, what, what's going on here, Saul? Why, why do I hear this this way? So Samuel has this statement and he confronts him on his disobedience. 
And even when Samuel hears about this, he was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. When he is first confronted by the Lord that Saul has sinned, he's angry and he loses sleep over it. And he goes to Saul and he confronts with Saul. And, and there's something about Samuel that I see here that I think is important for us, is that he is not detached emotionally from this situation. Right, he can know what God has said, he can do what God has said, obey the Lord fully and be aware that God is in control and yet he aches with what he has to do. In fact, after he declares to Saul, the kingdom is gone, you're not gonna get that thing back. Because Saul, right, Saul tries to get it back, doesn't he? He's like, well, if I just say I'm sorry and turn from that, can I get it back? And Samuel goes, it's too late. It's too late, you, you, you can't. You'll still be king until your rulership is done. But everything's different now. Everything's different now. You have been rejected as king. And if you look at that last paragraph, it's filled, I think, with heartache for Samuel. Samuel went to Ramah, Saul went to his house in Gibeah, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. Like, this is, this is where for us we have to, we have to remember this. Is that it, we can't just kind of go, well, this, God said it, so it's just cool. Right? Samuel still aches for what he has seen. Why? Because he's connected to Israel. He is an Israelite. He sees what is going on, and it bothers him that his nation is receiving judgment and that Saul has the kingdom removed, even though he knows God is in it all. It aches him. It doesn't prevent him from obeying, but it causes him to grieve and to lose sleep. And can you imagine that the one that you set up as king, as Samuel did to Saul, that for the rest of his kingship, you don't see him anymore. You operate separately as a way to actually physically live out that God has removed himself from him. So Saul's like, I'm gonna prove here, I'm gonna do what God says is better, or I'm gonna do better than what God says. Samuel goes, I'm gonna do what God says, but it's not gonna be easy, and it's not gonna be fun. I mean, can you imagine that every day, every day Samuel lives with the reality of what has gone on? Saul does too. He can't escape it. He can't escape it. So Saul has this idea, Samuel has this idea, then God, I don't assign words to God, but I'll put it like this, or assign a quote to God. But God is having regret, but he's in control. This idea of regret shows up a couple times, and if you actually look at them, you might get a little confused on how they line up together in the same chapter. So if you look at chapter 15, verse 10, you see this, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me. So God has some type of regret, for his choice of Saul. But really, who chose Saul? Israel, right? But God allowed for Saul to be king. So God expresses some kind of regret in verse 10. But, but we're not done. Because we recognize in verse 29, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. I have regret. God shouldn't, God's not a man, so he doesn't have regret. Then, 
you go back to the very last sentence of the chapter, chapter 15, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. And you're like, hey, author of 1 Samuel, could you have made this more clear, please? I regret that I've done it. But God doesn't regret anything, but God regretted that he did it. And so how do we hold those things together if you just follow the word regret? God regretted, God doesn't have regret, God regretted. It's like a regret sandwich. I don't know what to do with it. And this is, this is really on God and regret. Let's remember a couple of things. First, God is timeless. He has no beginning and he has no end. And then, this is the crazy thing, in creation, he actually started time. He started it. And so now he's operating within his creation in time. Okay? But he's also always outside of it. So he's in time with his creation, interacting as they're experiencing life, yet he has already been outside of it. And so that's like, right? We can't, we can't grasp that. So his regret is not because of his lack of awareness. All right? We're not open theists here. We're not like God does not you know, sometimes get it, but we're kind of co-creating with him, right? God is not going, well, I'm not really sure what's gonna happen. What's behind doors? Either door number one or door number two, but I can't wait to see what happens. That's not God. God knows what is going to come. Remember, before the foundation of the earth, Jesus was going to come into this world, and so it's not as if God's ever fooled here. So it's not his lack of awareness, and it's not because of his lack of sovereignty, because God is always in control, even while his creation has to suffer consequences for their bad decisions. Okay, but look at what God does. God enters for us into time and space and communicates with us. He enters into time and space and communicates with us. Because God's not a robot. He feels even as he ordains and as he moves. He interacts even as he is in control. Jesus wept even though he knew that someone had passed. How foolish it is for us to think that knowledge and control of something somehow removes emotion from it. Right, that God is aware fully of what is coming. But at the same time, he enters in and he communicates to Samuel in a way that Samuel gets. So his regret is not this kind of earthly regret that we may have because our earthly regret often comes because we don't understand the consequences of our decisions. It wasn't that God did not understand. He already said, I'm gonna give you a king and it's the wrong one and it's gonna be bad, right? Like they haven't rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. So he's fully aware of Saul and how this is gonna go. So it's not as if he is now reacting to his decision, but he's entering in and he's communicating with Samuel about the regret over Saul's bad leadership. Right, so some people talk about like the two wills of God, that God has both his sovereign will where he is moving and he is acting, but he also has this moral will that he enters into and that we can feel and interact and he demonstrates care and desire. And so he is grieved over Saul's leadership because it is bad. And he is grieved over Saul's disobedience because you don't want to disobey the voice of the Lord while at the same time fully aware and fully in control and only in the Lord can both of these exist. Because you can't do that. You can't have total sovereign control over anything. Zero, you can try. I remember one time talking to my friend about feeling helpless about a situation that was coming up in our life. This was probably nine, 10 years ago. And he just replied very quickly. He goes, helplessness is a good emotion because it's the closest way to the, things, the way things actually are. 
When you feel helpless, you're probably closer to how things actually are than you might ever be. And so for you and for me, we cannot ordain something and then see it come through because there are so many other ways that this thing might go. I take pride in being a good driver, but I bet everybody in this room thinks they're a good driver, right? Like we all do. Everyone else, crazy drivers, right? So it's everyone else outside of this room that doesn't know how to drive. But at the same time, I'm not even fully in control of what I'm doing, though I might feel like I am. So when we look at that passage in verse 29, he is not a man that he should have regret, meaning he is not unaware of outcomes. It's not like now he has regret because he's outside of time, but he enters into time because that's what he does in his grace to communicate with his creation. And he can still feel regret and communicate regret to Saul, though it is not like the regret that you and I have. It's a completely different thing. He can be grieved over your sin and still love you. Your sin can frustrate him, not because he's unaware of it or surprised by it, but because it causes so many issues in this world. And you can still be a child of his grace, which is an important thing for us to remember. That in our decisions, God can be bothered by them, and yet at the same time unchanging. And I think sometimes we do have this robotic view of God where he's just like, do this, do that. And he's kind of outside of time. And he just sits around like a man behind the curtain pulling on things. And he never really enters in, but he always enters in. In fact, the, Jesus himself shows us that God enters in. That God cares. And that God is present. And that God is near. And that God is loving. And that God is with us. While at the same time, us having no control over what he is doing in this world. And in fact, we understand this because we'll learn more about it in a couple of weeks, but in Genesis 49, verse 10, there's this statement that Jacob makes to Judah, and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, which is essentially him saying in a, prophetically, there's gonna be a king from Judah and it's going to never leave Judah. Well, Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin, but a neighboring tribe is Judah. And David is from the tribe of Judah. And so God, even through Jacob in Genesis chapter 49, knows what's going to come. Even though Saul's kingship is there, he knows that there's going to be a king who comes from Judah. Genesis 49.10. David's anointing is in chapter 16. So again, these two together give us kind of a heavy portion of 1 Samuel. Chapter 15 in the rejection of Saul and chapter 16 in the anointing of David. But the anointing of David doesn't make him king immediately. Right? He's just the one upon whom God's spirit rests, but we still have to wait for Saul's bad kingdom to come to an end. All right, so remember what we have in verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord a great, has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I would just summarize it like this. We cannot improve on what God has commanded. We can't improve upon it. There is no way you can improve upon it. So, sacrifice or obedience, to obey is better than to sacrifice. We hear that and it hits our ears in a funny way, but God set up a whole sacrificial system. So it wasn't as if sacrificing was bad in this time and in this space, but it's that God gave a specific command to remove the Amalekites and he didn't. There was no need and there was no expectation that you would save the animals and sacrifice those. And so to obey my voice is better than sacrifice. To do what I say is better than to do what you think I should say. And yet this is so often what we do as believers. And so these are a couple of statements that I have thought about where we might do the same thing, where we begin to presume upon God. I know, I know what scripture says, but it just doesn't align with how I feel right now. Oh, we do that all the time, don't we? I just don't feel like loving my wife. I don't feel like it. I don't care. Right? Like it, 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 that doesn't change what is true. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church when she deserves it? No. When you feel like it? No. When you're in a good mood? No. There is no qualification to when, it is always. I know what it says, but I just don't feel like it. To the kids in the room, here's a hard one. I know it is good to obey my parents, but my parents are crazy. Right? Your parents are crazy, I get it. You don't know my mom, my dad, my grandparents, whoever's in charge of you. You don't know them. They're crazy. Yeah, but from obeying them, we learn obedience to God. And they probably are crazy. That's true. You will be too. (laughs) I know that Jesus has said in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. But I'm just not an evangelist. And I don't really have a heart for the nations. It's, it's, it's not, a, there's no like, if you want or if you think, right? I know, I know God said, but I'm just not, that's just not me. I mean, how many times do we use a statement like, that's just not me? Right, like, like, and I'm really grateful for the people who that is like. And we all have different gifts and different passions, but it does not exempt us from the commands that exist within Scripture. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Another one, I don't think this is any of you, just so you know. And I'm thinking of no one when I say these, right? Everybody says, oh, it's talking about me? No. I don't think so. If I did, I'm sorry. I know it's good to be involved in a local church, but I just don't get fed there. I'm like, hey, listen, podcasts do not feed, right? Like, they, like, you might be able to learn great things from that. Go for it. I do the same. But you ask me, like, what are you going to do? When you die, is a podcast that's going to get played? Now let's all listen to an unrelated sermon that this person really liked in their life. 
Like, I know, I know that I should be engaged. I know that I should be here. I know that I should give of myself, but I'm just really struggling with it. Okay? That's always going to be the case. But the thing is, you can't presume or assume or improve upon what God has said to do. Why? Because God knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for us. He knows what matters, and he knows what doesn't. And if we would just allow ourselves, and we would listen to the Spirit and humbly submit to what we read in Scripture and what we see, it would be better for us than when we try and fight against it or improve upon it, like Saul had tried. And we can say that and still be so grateful for God's sovereignty, that David is still coming. And that from David comes Jesus. And from Jesus we find life. But may we not be the ones who go, yeah, but. I know what this says, but. I'm just not into it. I just don't feel it. I just don't care that much about it. That's just not me. We need to let God tell us what should be and what shouldn't be, where to focus and where not, and where we might struggle, because there are always going to be those places, I have them, you have them, then it's a matter of going, Lord, could you grow in me this heart? Could you grow in me this desire? Because I know I should care about it, and I don't. I'm not saying you're going to hit perfectly with it, but could you, could you actually transform the way I view my family? the way that I view my church, the way that I view my money, the way that I view the mission to make disciples, the way that I view the nations. Could you break me over my hard-heartedness so that I could care more deeply about the things that you care about, so I could love more fully the things that you love, so I could follow after these things with passion and unencumbered by this world? Could you reveal to me my sins, my concerns, my idolatry, my goofiness, so that I could run after you more freely? that I may obey and not just create cool little ideas that I think are obedience that actually aren't. Because to follow the voice of the Lord will always be better than to try and make up the voice of the Lord and follow that. So may we follow it together. Pray with me. Father, we learn so much about your character even from 1 Samuel 15 that you have declared that you are moving, that you care about what is going on with your people Israel, even as you are aware fully of what is going on and what is going to come. That you are living and that you are active and that you moved then and that you move now. We would ask, Lord, for that to continue in us. That you might strip away those things that keep us from really listening to your voice and following after you. That we would not just move upon what we think is best, but listen to your voice and do what you have said. To follow what you have said and what you have commanded over anything else. Lord, might you transform our hearts and as a church, just us as a people, to listen to you and to respond in obedience and in joy and places where we do not follow, where our hearts are crooked, might you, God, reveal it to us so that we could root that out and follow you more fully. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your son who gives us life, who gives us joy, who gives us hope. In knowing that we could not obey perfectly, you sent him and he did. And so more than anything, God, might you conform us more and more every day that we have on this earth, conform us into the character of Jesus, that we might look to you over anything else to live and to move and to have our being. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen.